Hey, guys. Uh, welcome to Covenant Church. Uh, we're going to go ahead and dismiss our kindergarten and first graders at this time. Just you guys. If you're second, third, fourth, fifth, sit down. Um, glad that you could join us this morning. Uh, my name is Connor McDonald. Uh, if you're new here and have no idea who I am, uh, I used to work here at Covenant. Uh, then three weeks ago, uh, I got married to my wife, Aiden, and she moved me down to Baton Rouge. And so uh, today is cool because this is my first Sunday to preach at Covenant as a guest. And so I'm just uh, so grateful for a church that invested in me and my wife a ton and uh, that continues to invest in me and invites me back to do something that I really enjoy and take seriously, which of course is preaching. And so it's a, it's a joy to be here today. Uh, so a, f- a few weeks ago, uh, you guys started a series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so I'm going to be taking you a little further through Philippians today, a, a whole two verses. Uh, no, but seriously, these are two very good verses that are important for us to understand uh, as followers of Jesus. Now, I want you to consider something. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you say that you are a Christian, then I want you to ask yourself, how do I know? What proof, in there, proof is there in my life that says that I am a Christian? Do I look different than when I first believed? And I don't mean to cast any shadows of doubt over you, but there should be outward evidence of a life marked by Christ. You should look noticeably different than the, the first day you were first saved. And you should look minutely different than you did yesterday. And this process of change that I'm referring to is called sanctification. And this change is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus at its very core. One who learns and grows, learns and grows day after day. One commentary defines sanctification as the lifelong obedience of believers, which leads us to growth in Christ-likeness. Meaning that this is the believer's lifelong pursuit, being more like Jesus. And so that brings us back to our original question. Do I look different than when I first believed? Because that, that's our sermon in a sentence for today. And in light of Jesus and his goodness, we are to walk in his footsteps that he left behind for us. We are to be people who pursue Christ-likeness. So our text for today is going to be Philippians 12, uh, 2, 12, and 13, if you have a copy of the Bible and want to turn there. And as a way of reminder, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Philippi, to the Philippian people. And these were people that Paul loved. He was writing to encourage them and, and thank them. I read this the other day. It said, uh, Philippians is one of the happiest books in the Bible. And it was written in prison. And I just love that. This letter is overflowing with joy. And then you have like the magnum opus of Philippians. It's located right before where we will be today, which is the Christ hymn, verses 6 through 11. Where Paul tells us to be Christ-like, to have his mindset, to consider others as more important than ourselves. To be humble, to be self-sacrificing, to be like Jesus. Surely those are all traits of someone who has been regenerated, who is 
a new creation who is, uh, as we're going to talk about today, working out their salvation. So if you don't mind, let's uh, read Philippians 2, 12 and 13, then I'm going to pray. And then we're going to look at what God has for us this morning. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Um, let's go ahead and pray. And while I pray, pray with me that you know, your hearts and minds would be stilled and that God would, would speak to us today. God, thanks for today and just your love for us and that you saved us and um, that you continue to love us even though we mess up all the time. Uh, I just pray that as we look at this idea today that we would um, learn what it means to be a better follower of you, to how to work out our salvation and uh, just grow more like you. And so, um, yeah, let us hear from you today and ultimately let us see Jesus. It's in your name I pray, amen. So Paul transitions here by saying, therefore. Now, a quick hermeneutics lesson. When you see the word therefore in scripture, it's helpful to ask yourself, what is it therefore? Even if you've studied English grammar, you know that therefore is a transition word that builds upon the previous statements before it. It is essentially synonymous with the word because. Therefore, because my beloved dot, dot, dot. And so Paul is building upon what he's already written. Paul has spent the rest of the letter uh, before the statement thanking God for the Philippians, telling him, uh, them he is praying for and thinking of them. He discusses the advancement of the gospel. He calls for unity and humility. And then he says, therefore, because of all of those things that I've already written, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. First here, Paul is applauding the consistency and obedience of the Philippians as they live in obedience both in front of Paul and even when he is away. So it seems that the Philippians were, were authentic believers. They were living out what Paul taught them, not just when he was around, but when he wasn't there as well. Right? It's one thing to, to do all the things you're supposed to do when other people are watching, but it's much more to do those things when no one sees them, when there is no one there to praise you, or when there's no glory. And this is something we all need to wrestle with. What are our motivations for serving? Are we doing all the things we are doing so that someone else will praise us? Are we using our gifts to catch someone else's eye? Are we serving to be seen? Are we praying so others hear how much we know about the Bible? Are we giving so much so we can boast? Are you obeying only while you are in the presence of others? Because, friends, as Jesus said, if you are practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them, or giving to the needy and sounding a trumpet, 
Or if you're heaping up empty phrases while you pray, or you're standing at the street corner and praying to be seen as holy, or you're putting on a gloomy face while you fast to be noticed, you will have earned your reward. But it is when we practice our righteousness in secret, when we're not in the presence of others, not for attention or praise, then our Father who sees in secret will reward us. So it comes down to this. Would you rather the fleeting temporary praise of man or the eternal love of the Father? As Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said, Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Paul is commending the Philippians for their consistent obedience that works itself out publicly and privately. And, and again, he says, therefore, because of all of these things, including your obedience, because of all of this, work out your salvation. And this is sort of a, a tricky and unique phrase that Paul uses here. Now, before we, we pick apart what it means to work out our salvation, we need to clear something up. Paul says, work out your salvation. He does not say work for your salvation. He doesn't say work to earn it or gain it. There's a distinction. One is the restful, confident, daily sanctification or our moving towards Christ-likeness. The other is a tired, restless, often begrudging obedience. One knows that God loves them and securely strives to be like Jesus, not because they have to, but because now they freely can. And the other runs on an endless treadmill, never stopping, never resting, never reaching his goal. The one who works to earn their salvation never feels good enough because at the end of the day, they aren't good enough. So we don't need to or have to work for our salvation. We don't need to complete a checklist, then we are saved. There is no prerequisite for grace, except that we repent and believe as Jesus tells us. Jesus already earned our salvation. He already did the work and he, and he did that by freely dying for us. Jesus did the work and now we don't work for our salvation. Jesus already got that for us. Instead, now we work out our salvation. So let's talk about what it means to work out our salvation. What does that look like? What is it? Especially if it means we aren't uh, working to earn our salvation. This text is, it's often misused to like create this fear mongering, uh, to instill uh, doubt and fear within believers saying, you know, work it out, you know, figure out if you truly are saved. Some people even cite this verse to argue that you can lose your salvation, but that's not the case. Working out, if you, if you look at the actual Greek word, means to achieve, to accomplish, to bring about, to bring to completion or fruition. As Paul himself describes in Philippians 3, it is this straining forward, pressing forward towards the goal. In short, it is our sanctification, our growing in Christ's likeness, our discipleship, and how it works out in our lives. 
Now, I think the, that the way that our sanctification, our growth towards Christ-likeness plays out in our lives is primarily through discipleship. Not like the idea of like sitting with two guys and you know, you're talking about your sin discipleship, but like the idea of discipleship. Um, I mean, becoming more like Christ and being a disciple of Christ go hand in hand. How? Well, the word disciple means someone who is a learner, someone who puts himself in a position to learn. And in this instance, the position to learn is near Christ. Ipso facto, when we are near Christ, ready to learn, we learn how to be more like Christ. A disciple walks with Christ, one who is near Christ, and that is the very place that he or she will learn how to be like Christ, near him. So moving forward, I'm going to be using the phrase working out to kind of umbrella these terms and ideas of sanctification and discipleship. And there are a few things that I want us to understand about this process. Number one, working out is required of each and every believer. Learning, growing, working out your salvation is required. Paul didn't flippantly just say this, but he actually commands it. It's not a question. He doesn't say, you know, if you get around to it, work out your salvation. He says, work out your salvation, period. So all of us should be putting ourselves near Christ and other people who follow him to learn how to be more like Christ. Number two, working out requires participation. Being a growing disciple requires participation. No one can make you be a disciple. I mean, even Paul there says, work out your own salvation. No one can make you be a disciple, but discipleship also will not just happen on its own. And of course, you have the Spirit and you are working together and He equips and empowers you, but ultimately it takes some action on your part. Number three, working out. Your spiritual level of maturity is not indicated by age. It is a matter of the heart. This is why Paul writes to Timothy, do not let them despise you because of your youth, because he knows that young people can kick old people's butts at being followers of Jesus. And this doesn't mean all old people are spiritually immature or all young people are hypermature, but it does mean that anyone at any time in their life can be a serious follower of Jesus. For example, there are students in the youth here that I, that I know have either read or almost read all of the Bible. I mean, think about how awesome that is. For instance, my, my sister Lily Claire is one of them, and it's so cool because she's just starting high school, and, and during when she was in eighth grade is where I was at the end of high school. And so to think about how much further along she'll be when she's my age. We should commit to discipleship and encourage and strengthen young people to start now. Don't treat them like dumb babies. Treat them like little followers of Jesus. And number four, working out is a lifelong process. You will never arrive until glorification. This is what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
Yes, we are being transformed, but from one degree to another, just one. And so working out becomes the daily rhythm of the Christian life, just slowly, daily, consistently changing one degree. One degree. This is what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. Just like Forrest Gump who just kept moving forward. One degree, slow, consistent, daily for the rest of our lives. So if working out is required, if it demands participation and it is this lifelong process, then how do we do it? I want to talk about the three ways that we work out. And I, I kind of made it this sort of a garden of Gethsemane model. There was, you know, Jesus individually with God. And then a little ways back, there was a small group. You had Peter, James, and John. And then a little ways back from that, there, there were all the seven other disciples in a large group. So number one, how do we do this? We disciple alone. This is our personal spiritual development. Are my circles up there? Yes. We see Jesus model this often. He would slip away and go be with God one-on-one. -on -one. And this is essential for our spiritual formation, for our sanctification. We must spend time with God one-on-one. -on -one. He desires for us to spend unique an intentional time with him. Like going to get coffee with a, with a dear friend or, or Monjunis as me and one of my best friends always do. Or like tossing the ball with your dad or like having a date with your spouse. All of these examples are unique and intentional and they imply a desire to one, of course, be with the other person, but also two, to know them greater. As you sit across the table at a coffee shop or an Italian restaurant, you are connecting your heart with your friends, knowing them deeper. Or when you toss the ball with your father, as he checks in and asks how you are and gives you wisdom. Or as you date your spouse and you, your quiet looks communicate and you're growing more in love and understanding of one another. This is why we do this, to know our friend and father greater. This is what he desires. His heart is for us, so we should seek to spend time with him through his word, through prayer, through rest, through creation, through worship. This is how we grow to learn how this is how we grow and learn by being with God in the quiet place. We disciple alone. Now, number two, we, we expand a little. We're at Peter, James, and John. We disciple with a few. This is a small group. This is disciple, uh, discipleship groups. This is accountability par uh, partners, whatever you want to call it. A group of two to three. And this is very, a very important part of us growing and working out our salvation. These groups for us to sharpen one another, to carry one another's burdens, to bear with one another, to encourage, to challenge, to pray together, to learn together. This is a group where we introduce others to Jesus and the word and encourage them to grow. And by doing so, we ourselves encounter Jesus and the word and grow ourselves. This is what Jesus told us in John 13, that we should be known for our love for one another. And what greater way is there to love each other than to do life together and encourage each other towards Christ-likeness? Jesus modeled this. He went in and did life with others. He 
gave his life in exchange for people, we should too. And then the Apostle Paul modeled this. He said in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, So being affectionately desirous of you, we're ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. Paul shared his life with everyone at, at the churches he encountered and the other apostles and Silas and Barnabas and Titus and Timothy and, and so many other people. Paul devoted himself to other people. If you've seen discipleship in this way, like, like small group discipleship, then you know that there are a few more joyous, hard, and awesome things to watch. Last school year, I had a discipleship group with Tristan and Braden Beveridge. We, we had a reading plan we did together, and, and it was incredible to watch them grow. We just talked about their lives and their struggles and their praises. We prayed together, and it was so cool to watch them grow. And by doing so, they encouraged me too. And that's the beauty of discipleship, that you grow together. You're working out your salvation together. And finally, number three, we disciple, uh, disciple corporately. As we walk in community, as we gather here together, we disciple one another. I read a quote the other day that said, we come to faith as individuals, but we grow in community. In heaven, we're going to be with Christ and one another. It's only natural that we should learn how to live and love one another now. Let me read a, a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote, Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Into the community you were called. The call was not meant for you alone. In the community of the called, you bear your cross. You struggle. You pray. You are not alone. Even in death and on the last day, you will be only one member of the great congregation of Jesus Christ. If you scorn the fellowship of the brethren, you reject the call of Jesus Christ. And thus, your solitude can only be hurtful to you. God himself is a God of community. He's a, a triune God. He models perfectly community to us. The three persons of the Godhead submitting to one another, yet working together. And that's how we're supposed to function as a body of believers, submitting to one another and working together. And those things seem like they don't go together. And so we grow or work out our salvation in settings like this, where our worship songs say what we believe and how loud and joyful we sing those words tell how much we believe them where the words that are preached edify and encourage and instruct us, where we can join together and lock arms as a family. So how discipleship or sanctification or growing plays out in our lives is like these three concentric circles. The largest is the gathering, the body, the church. And then, you know, this is kind of the general stuff. And then you move in a level to a, a small group discipleship where you get down and dirty and it's more specialized. And then you have individual spiritual development where you grow to know God better and really figure out what you yourself believe. So these are how this idea of working out plays out for us as believers. Now let's consider how we, we work out our salvation in our daily lives. We, we understand that working out is required and it's a lifelong process and it requires our participation. 
And we just talked about the mediums by which we work out. But how can we tomorrow work out our salvation? First, create a strategy for you to spend time with God daily. This can look a thousand different ways. There's no correct answer. I was even talking with a friend this week. We were talking about Bible reading strategies. And I've been wrestling with this for like two years. How how much do I need to read? I don't want to read like four chapters a day and, and not actually connect with God. But I can say I read four chapters. But I don't want to read nothing at all. It really is so weird. As, as I told my friend, there's no surefire way to do it because each day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to, I'm going to be a different person. I may feel different or unmotivated or tired or far from God or, or the opposite. I may be super excited to be with God or that day or I may be crushing it or really enjoying my reading. And so your process may never look the same. I think it's sort of like the idea that we see about giving where each person must decide what he feels good about doing and then doing it. I've known people who read 10 chapters a day and I've known people who read a verse verse a day. It just comes down to how each of us hears from God. So think through it. Create a strategy for being with God each day and begin to practice it. Second, participate in discipleship. I'm talking about life on life, life discipleship, walking with others. God has strategically placed you in your circumstances, where you are, where you live, surrounded by the people you're surrounded by so that you can be discipled and so that you yourself can disciple others. Discipleship is a beautiful thing, so do it. I think we need a disciple above us and a disciple below us, one who is further along than us, who is speaking truth and wisdom over us, and then someone who's not as far along as we are, someone we can aid and advise. I just think, like, discipleship trees are are super, super cool. Like, I have some older buddies who have mentored and discipled me and some others uh, then and some others, and we have done the same. And so you can trace the lineage of discipleship. I have friends older than me, like my friends, I have some in this room and uh, and several others who have kept my feet from some dumb steps and who have poured out their very lives for me. And then I remember my friend, one of my friends and I, we were 11th and 12th graders at the time, taking three eighth graders, RJ being one of them, to Applebee's. I don't know why Applebee's, especially when, you know, there's a chili right, chili's right down the road. But, and we were just sharing our lives with them. And it's cool to just be able to trace it down the line. You know, RJ is the, is the grandson disciple of the ones that were above me on the, on the discipleship tree. And that's, and that's all we're called to do is to fill ourselves up to be poured out over and over and over And the final way we let this play out in our lives, how we can do this tomorrow is by using our gifts. Use your gift. A church is made up of many members. You know, a nose can't be scratched without a finger. And in the same way, God has uniquely wired and gifted each of us. So figure out what really gets you pumped. Is it discipleship? Is it discipleship of teenagers or kids or adults? Do you really like stacking chairs? Can you sing or play an instrument? Can you teach and preach God's word? Are you good at prayer? Are you good at sensing the person left out in a room and going and talking to them? 
Do you love to encourage or, or hug like Hayes? All of these things and many more are ways that each of us are gifted. And we shouldn't just save our hugs for our moms, but for the brokenhearted as well. We shouldn't hoard our, encur- hoard our encouragement for just our friends, but for the downtrodden. Don't just save your singing for the shower, but use it to magnify the name of God. Don't keep all your prayers in your prayer room, but lift them up for the desperate. We bless God and others when we use our gifts. Don't just hoard your gifts, share them. Paul tells us to work out our salvation. When we actually do this, we bless ourselves, others, and God. So figure out how tomorrow you will work out your salvation. Now, Paul commanded us to work out our salvation. We are to pursue Christ's likeness for the rest of our days. But he also tells us the posture we should take while doing so. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Thus, we enter into this weird sort of paradox. We have this God who is capable of wiping us all out in an instant. This is the God who's spoken mountains and oceans and stars poured out of his mouth. The God who was and is and is to come, who knows all and sees all, who contains all of the power and all of the glory. This is God, and on paper, those facts are terrifying and awesome. When we see how big God is, our reaction should be fear and trembling, respect and awe. We should have a healthy fear of our God because he is just and right and wholly perfect. And what we deserve is his judgment. So we should revere God. But here's the paradox. But this is the same God who drew near in the form of a baby. Gentle and lowly, meek and available. Who laughed and cried. Who smiled and wept. Who loved his mama. Who walked and stumbled. Who sweat and grew who ate meals, slept, scraped his knees. Isn't that like such a crazy idea there that that contrasts the juxtaposition of God? I, I just love it. I mean, on paper here, when we talk about Jesus as a human, it seems like the opposite of the God I described a moment ago. It even seems sort of disrespectful to talk about Jesus like this, almost condescending. But Jesus himself condescended into this world This is who he was. Why do we like to talk so much about the wrathful and and God of the Old Testament, the one who wants to destroy us all, and not the beauty and the loveliness of Christ? Because I think these facts that Jesus is a sympathetic, kind, gracious, lovely, near Savior should make us equally revere and respect our God. Not because he's trigger happy, waiting to destroy us, but because he can destroy us, yet he chooses to give his very life for us so we can know him and love him and so he can pursue us. And so this paradox is why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is holy and he's majestic and powerful, but also, and these are God's own words, because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
Now, after Paul commends the Philippians for their obedience and, and commands them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, he reminds them of one thing. He says in verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This should come as a comfort to us. Paul has told us to work out our salvation. But then he reminds us that underlying that is God working. Therefore, underlying our work is God's work. To further quote Paul, just a few sentences before he wrote what we read today, he wrote, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We have this beautiful partnership with God. He did the initial work of saving us. Now we continue to work out our salvation. We let it play out in our lives, but ultimately it is still God working in us and bringing about the goal of our salvation. I read a quote that said, we work because God works. We build our, our house upon the rock. We labor and build, but it's upon the work of God. It's what the psalmist says in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who built it labor in vain. God laid the foundation at salvation. Now we collaborate and co-labor with him in building the house unto completion. And this is really cool because as God works in us, he equips us to will and work for his good pleasure. When you were first saved, your will and the works you did probably didn't align with the good pleasure of God. But now as we work and God works in us, he changes our wills and our desires and enables us to do good work. Let's talk about those two things for a moment. He changes our desires and he enables us to do good works. First, our desires. If you consider your pre-Christ desires, they probably weren't inherently evil and malicious although the Bible does tell us that our hearts are deceitfully wicked, but your desires probably weren't all that crazy. Depending on when you were saved, you probably desired to go to a good college, go to a good school, get a good education, find a spouse, start a family, find a good job, save money, buy a car, buy a house. You know, some real American dream type stuff. The issue is not that we have a desire for those things. God created us to be people who desired Namely, that we would desire him, we would, our will would be to know him. The issue is that before Christ in our lives, and, and sometimes still now, our desires are self-centered. All those desires were just for us and for our good and what we wanted. For example, the story of Adam and Eve, who were originally without sin and who loved God, and, and they literally got to walk with him. They failed not because of the serpent's temptation to be like God, but because they acted on it. Instead of immediately saying no to temptation, they chose to consider it. And as they did, it grew more enticing. And finally, it gave birth to sin, and they ate the fruit. This choice to satisfy their desire, their will, to please themselves instead of God, brought spiritual death. They chose to satisfy their desires. They said, forget what God said, and they did what they wanted. This is what James tells us in uh, 1.14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
We let sin dangle in front of us like a fish staring at a worm on a hook, failing to see the the danger that lies behind, only seeing the delight and the pleasure of the moment. And you know what happens to fish who get caught on a hook, especially around these parts. They get tossed into the, the fiery fryer. So with desire, when we act on those hanging temptations, when we act in our own will, as James says, death, a spiritual death. So now God is working in us to change those desires. He's trying to change it back to the, that pre-fall standard where we desire to walk and talk with God, to be with him and know him. And on top of that now, he's changing all those desires to be him-centered, to bring him glory. So now when you're considering a job opportunity, you may not look at just the paycheck amount, but now you consider which job you can leverage for the gospel each day in the office. When you're looking at buying a house, you consider the neighborhood and the spiritual needs of it and the city and how you can use your new unique location to expand the kingdom of God. This is how God changes our wills, our desires. Ultimately, it's us saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all the choices we have to make and all that we want. And secondly, he now enables us to do good works. He changes our will and now our works as well. Titus 2.14 says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul is speaking to this change of our works here in Titus. He, he tells us how Jesus gave himself and by, so, by doing so, he redeemed us from our lawless works and to make us into people who not only do good because it's what is required of us because it is, or because it's expected, but now as his people, we are zealous for good works. Now as believers, we get excited and passionate and enthusiastic about doing good. We should be excited to bring good about in our cities. We should be passionate about helping restore all things. We should be enthusiastic about being the welfare of our cities. These things should excite us. We should be zealous for good works. We should be good work zealots. I love what what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are are perishing. We are the aroma of Christ. Christ leads us and as he takes us by the hand through our cities, And as we're doing good and loving others and declaring the fame of Jesus, we're spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We're to be so close to Jesus that we begin to smell like him, to act like him, to talk like him. And as we go out to our jobs and our schools and our neighborhoods and all the things, we should spread the fragrance of Jesus. We should reek of Jesus. And as we go about, everyone should catch a whiff of him as we go by. This is what our good works do. They spread the knowledge of Jesus. People will say, why the heck did you do that good thing? And your answer is because I follow Jesus and I cannot help but look like and act like and talk like and walk like he did. 
So as we work out our salvation, as we let the saving grace of God and and the life of Jesus play out in our lives, God is simultaneously working in us to correct our desires and works to be for his good pleasure, which is ultimately for our good and the good of our cities and our neighborhoods. So band, you can go ahead and come up and get up here. Uh, We're about to enter into a time of prayer and communion. So there's going to be people uh, stationed in the back, our prayer team, who you can pray with if you need to, if you have questions. And just take this time to really let the, you know, the words of Philippians 2, 12, and 13 wash over you and think about them, consider them, and consider what I'm about to say and, and really pray through it. I, I have a couple more questions. One last time, I want you to consider something. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you say that you're a Christian, Again, I want you to ask yourself, how do I know? What proof is there in my life that says that I am a Christian? Do I look different than when I first believed? This is what Paul, in a way, is asking us. He is directly saying, work out your salvation. Grow, learn, be near Jesus. But while he's saying that, he is also silently asking, are you doing this? Is there evidence of your salvation? Are you working out your salvation? Are you growing? Are you learning? Are you becoming more?